0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, December 6th. The Bank of Canada has announced it will hold the key interest rate at the 5% mark. We catch up with Bill Robson of the CD Howe Institute for his thoughts on the decision and what we may expect from the BOC as we move into 2024.
1: Next, Canada announcing an ambitious target at the COP28 climate conference in Dubai, aiming to slash methane emissions by 75%. Is it achievable or just posturing? We tackle the topic with Matthew Johnson, professor and head of the Energy and Emissions Research Lab at Carleton University.
0: And finally, if your family don- Dynamics have changed this year, and you're co-parenting heading into the Christmas season. It can be a challenge to adjust to the new holiday routine. We get some advice on how to navigate the change with Rebecca Jeremko-Bromwich, professor of law and legal studies from Carleton University. 8.17 on your Wednesday morning. Bank of Canada has announced it will hold the line and keep the key interest rate at 5% as we put a cap on 2023. Joining us to discuss the decision and the state of the Canadian economy is Bill Robson, CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. Good morning to you, Bill. And good morning to you. Well, let's break this down. What were the key factors, you know, of the Bank of Canada decision and to hold it at 5%? What do you think was behind that?
2: I think the key uh, thing, uh, and, and they probably didn't want to state this uh, quite as uh, loudly and enthusiastically in the communique as they might be thinking internally, uh, is that the, uh, inflation is on the way down. They've they've kind of broken the back of it. Uh, and the uh, my own expectation is sort of consistent with their forecast that we're going to be back uh, very close to the 2% target as we uh, uh, get uh, into next year. The reason they didn't want to say that too loudly is because, uh, first of all, they're a bit bruised from having uh, let inflation get out of hand in the first place, and and they've got some credibility damage as a result of the commitment that they made uh, back during the pandemic to keep interest rates uh, uh, really low sort of indefinitely. Um, And then the one other thing that I'm sure is on their minds is that if people are anticipating that their rate's going to come off, And already uh, in financial markets, there's been a bit of a reaction as people have been expecting uh, central banks generally and certainly the U.S. Federal Reserve to start cutting rates. Uh, That can kind of uh, cause people to get out there and start borrowing and buying um, uh, with a bit more energy, which the bank would probably prefer not to see right now. So uh, I think that explains, uh, you know, they, they held the rate. I'm pretty confident the next move is going to be a cut, but they didn't want to say that too loudly.
1: So, I mean, really, Bill, we're not in the clear yet, right? I mean, potentially anything could happen, however consumers respond to this this announcement
2: well yeah if people if people really decided hey it's uh, you know interest rates are, are going way back down and 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 uh, started borrowing and spending like crazy um th- that would change the outlook the other thing as we know is that the world throws uh, uh problems at us all the time but when you when you look at the overall shape of things right now it's quite remarkable how much of a mirror image we're in uh, or sort of you know the the process in reverse uh, that happened when inflation first started to get out of hand, because we had, uh, you know, the government was, federal government particularly was just spending like crazy. Uh, they were financing a lot of that money from the bank by borrowing from the Bank of Canada, and that created all this liquidity. And and what you saw happening was. A lot of prices of things that move fast, especially uh, the sort of goods that um, you know people can easily buy and get delivered in a box on their porch, uh, that went up very rapidly. And so now what's happened is the prices of a lot of goods, with the important exception of food, um, but a lot of things like household furnishings and, and clothing and so on, it's actually not, a, compared to where we were, it's not a bad time if you're thinking of year they get that kind of uh, Christmas present. Um, the price of goods is off a lot. The price of services it always is, it lags a little. But um, when you look at some of those indicators that I mentioned earlier, including just how much money creation is going on, uh, we really are kind of on the on the down side of that hill that we were earlier going up. And I think there's a lot of reason for people to expect it Inflation is
0: going to continue to ease. Inflation aside, we we talk about the situation we've been in and there's speculation from those in the know about a recession, a looming recession, whether or not we will, and if we do, just how deep it will be. What are you seeing when it comes to recession?
2: Well, it's been a remarkably soft landing so far. I didn't think it would be uh, as easy as this because you think of uh, how inflation has gone from 8% plus down to 3% plus. Five percentage points off the inflation rate is a lot. And and when you look back over time, there haven't been very many episodes like that in Canada. But when they've happened, we have had uh, quite a painful recession. The thing that makes this episode a bit weird is that um, the population is growing really quickly because of uh, immigration and, uh, and a sort of influx of temporary workers. And what that means is that when you look at... GDP, which is usually what people look at. Is it growing? Is it shrinking? Is it flat? Um, what's happening on a per-person basis is actually quite different. So uh, on, 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 on the whole, I'm kind of uh, uh, encouraged by what's happening with the economy. Uh, yes, we're going to have uh, some flat or, or maybe slightly uh, negative quarters. But it looks like we're not going to have anything like we did in the early 90s or in the early 80s for those who remember those uh, very tough times. But the trouble is, on a per-person basis, because of population growing so rapidly, it, it, it's not going to feel great. We are we are definitely going to be pretty grumpy over the course of the next year. And for some people, of course, it's more than just being grumpy. I mean, mm-hmm. if your job's uh, at, at risk.
1: So uh, overall, Bill, advice for Canadians? You know, as we, we see that the Bank of Canada is holding the line right now, 5%. Could it change perhaps? But you're hoping things will get a little lower as we move into 2024. Advice for us? Just sort of relax and don't overspend?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly feel a lot better about that. Uh, if we'd been talking a year ago, I, I would have been very much on the cautious side. Watch that variable rate mortgage. Uh, uh, watch your credit card balance. Um, we still need to be cautious because, of course, a soft economy uh, means that you might have to dip into your savings. Uh, but when it comes to interest rates, Uh, I I don't think the Bank of Canada is likely to hike further. It would have to be some very peculiar emergency. Uh, Everything is kind of unfolding the way that they would like it to. If you look at their inflation forecast for my money, uh, I think we are going to see prices uh, uh, going back down uh, towards uh, that 2% inflation rate. And when it comes to interest rates, Uh, they don't want us to be getting too enthusiastic ahead of the game. They have to talk tough. They're certainly more concerned about the upside risks given what's happened in the recent past. But I do think this is the top of the cycle and I think that in a year's time we're going to have a lower overnight rate.
0: And, Bill, I'm not sure if this is in your wheelhouse or not, but we've talked a lot about different things when it comes to interest rate and inflation and recession. Uh, We do know that over the past 18 months or so, the cost of food has been higher and trended higher than inflation. We know that has come down somewhat, but still not quite as much. Do you see any relief when it comes to putting food on the table uh, for that cost for Canadians in the next year?
2: Yeah, food is the, I was just saying generally what's happened on the goods side has been, uh, when you look at StatsCan's uh, uh, breakdown of the consumer price index over the year to October, which was the most recent number we got, uh, goods prices up 1.6% year over year, so actually below 2% already. Uh, service prices up 4.6%. On the goods side, though, the big exception is food. Uh, and and some of that is just uh, the sorts of, uh, things that affect food prices from time to time. If there's a drought, if, if vegetables get more expensive because the growers are having trouble, uh, that, that's one thing. And of course, in Canada, we have uh, the supply management system that keeps the price of uh, uh, milk and uh, dairy, you know, dairy products, generally, uh, eggs and so on. Uh, those things never go down. So uh, it's kind of irritating to have that kind of uh, uh, regulated price feeding through uh, in the food side. But when you when you look over longer periods of time. Uh, it's it's very unusual for any price to be way out of whack over the over like a two- or a three-year period. Energy has its cycles, as everybody in Alberta knows very well. Um, but I would think that we're going to see some relief on food prices as well. I would just wish we would fix that supply-managed stuff so that we weren't always paying more every time the prices change on dairy products.
1: Bill, thanks so much for breaking it down. Appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure. Thanks, Bill Robson, CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute.
0: 7.05 on your Wednesday morning. Environment Minister Stephen Guibault is in Dubai at the COP28 conference and has announced an ambitious plan to slash methane emissions by 75%. Premier Danielle Smith has called the plan costly, dangerous, and unconstitutional. Joining us to discuss this issue is Matthew Johnson, professor and head of the Energy and Emissions Research Lab at Carleton University. Good morning to you, Matthew. Good morning. So do we know what led to the decision to release a more ambitious methane regulation uh, for uh, the at the COP28?
3: Oh, sure. This has been coming for a while. Uh, federal government posted uh, several months ago kind of an outline framework for what they might be regulating. But really this is part of a larger global push. Uh, 150 countries signed on to something called the Global Methane Initiative uh, almost two years ago now uh, with an aggressive worldwide push to bring methane emissions down by 2030
1: can you describe matthew a little bit for us you know the environmental impact believed to be harmed the what it does methane emissions what does it what does it actually do to the environment
3: sure so methane is a potent greenhouse gas uh it's about a little more than 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide in the first 20 years after it's released but the really interesting thing about methane is it has a relatively short lifetime in the atmosphere. So what that means is we stop emitting now, it's gone in give or take 10 years. And so the payback is almost immediate uh, and it's kind of an 80 to one payback over CO2. CO2 is of course the the real longer term problem, but it's gonna stick in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. And, And so methane is kind of this amazing one time big lever we can pull um, one of the most powerful climate actions we can take.
0: Uh, uh, powerful action that we can take, but uh, Matthew, how you know, we say ambitious, how attainable is this goal? Is it easily reachable and will we be able to replace methane effectively?
3: So I wouldn't say anything's easy. Uh, nothing's really easy in climate, um, but it's doable. Uh, and it's doable cheaper and easier Than anything else we're kind of talking about, you know, far, far cheaper than carbon sequestration and storage, you know, thousands of times cheaper than pulling carbon dioxide out of the air. Um, And maybe we'll get to that in a second, but more than an environment, it's actually important for business in Canada.
1: Let's talk a little bit about Minister Guibo mentioning, uh, you know, new performance standards for leak detection and repair. How would that be implemented? What role would inspections play?
3: So of course we're still just looking at the regulations like everybody else. They've only just been out. Um, and I mean, I expect we'll probably be putting in comments at some point once we've had time to analyze. But in those regulations, uh, from our kind of surface analysis so far, you know, they're, they're in the oil and gas sector, venting is a big source, uh, fugitive leaks are a big source, uh, and emissions from combustion equipment is a big source. And this regulation uh, deals with vending pretty much head-on that you're asking about the fugitive piece. Um, In the position statement they proposed a a little over a year ago, or about a year ago I think it was, they were suggesting kind of 12 times a year inspections, which would have been really quite a lot. Uh, That's been relaxed to four times a year, kind of in line with other jurisdictions. Um, But they're adding, uh, instead to get rid of the 12 and drop the four, there's a fifth inspection that's. Uh, external third party uh, called an audit, and, and that's new and, and quite interesting, and maybe feeds really well into uh, export ambitions for Canada through LNG Canada, etc.
0: We do know, obviously, here in Alberta, that there's an opposition to these proposed regulations. We can add Saskatchewan to that list as well against these regulations. Could there be any teeth uh, to an opposition when it comes to something like this, Matthew?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I, I really honestly doubt that opposition is all that united. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, for example, I read in the news just a couple of days ago, Arc Resources, a good Canadian company, uh, just signed a deal with Chenier. Uh, Chenier is a big oil and gas company, gas company primarily in the U.S. that exports through the Gulf Coast to Europe. Tourmaline has also signed a deal with Chenier. So these are two Canadian companies that are exporting their gas down through the Gulf Coast. Gulf Coast, sorry, and off to Europe. And Europe just passed uh, about two weeks ago uh, an agreement that by 2030, they are going to restrict fossil fuel that enters Europe based on its methane intensity. So I guarantee those two companies understand this and are ahead of it. Um, I, I think they're both kind of forward-thinking thinking companies in general. And and so if we step away from the environmental issue for a second, this is uh a business issue as much as anything. The US is restricting in the inflation Reduction Act, they're charging a fee based on your methane intensity. The Europe as of Europe as of twenty thirty won't let oil and gas into the European Union unless it meets a externally verified methane intensity standard. And so there are definitely companies in the Canadian oil and gas sector who get this. Our own measurements show that, you know, there are companies out there that are demonstrably cleaner than their peers. And so I, I think cooler heads might prevail on this just yet. I understand. Nobody likes a regulation. as new. Nobody likes a regulation coming federally. I lived in Alberta for many years. I get it. Um, but, but I think there's a bigger picture here of opportunity for the Canadian energy sector that we're really going to want to get behind.
1: Matthew, thank you so much for breaking it down. Thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Matthew Johnson, professor and head of the Energy and Emissions Research Lab at Carleton University. now and the holiday season can sure be challenging for families but even more so if you're a co-parent navigating shared custody over the holidays. Joining us with some insight in how to maneuver this holiday season is Rebecca Jeremko-Bromwich, adjunct professor in the Department of Law and Legal Studies at Carleton University. Good morning to you professor thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, tough one, right? I mean, it's difficult anyway if you don't perhaps have the best relationship with your your ex partner and you've got the kids. So, you know, maybe give us some insights. How do you how do you address like just even from the start the challenges that are faced by separated or divorced co parents during the holiday season?
4: Well, as the first thing, it's important to note that this is such a common problem. It was highlighted by the separation of the Prime Minister from his former partner earlier this year, but this has statistically become uh, quite a norm in Canada that lots and lots of families are co-parenting. So the first thing is don't feel stigmatized or bad about it. This is quite normal for many kids. And a lot of research has shown that, in fact, it's not being in a divorced or separated home or set of homes that is harmful for kids. So there's nothing wrong with it. Kids can thrive but high levels of conflict actually do harm kids. And so the best thing to do is to try and find a way through a difficult situation without exposing the kids to conflict. So one piece of advice that's maybe not that helpful at this point now that we're in December is to try and start early. Try and come up with plans uh, in advance so you're not in a last-minute panic. But at the same time, it's not too late. Um, There are lots of helping professionals who can assist, such as social workers and parenting coordinators, and it's a great idea to use the help and resources that are available to try and come up with constructive solutions. Another suggestion actually is flexibility. One of the things that we find beautiful and challenging in the holiday season, whatever we celebrate, is tradition. And tradition is a big part of what brings us together. But if we're able to be flexible about our traditions and suggest, for example, a person could celebrate, if they celebrate Christmas, they could do it on the 24th or 26th, to enable the kids to enjoy themselves and not have a lot of stress around that, um, that can really go a long way. And also to try to be reasonable and equitable, but really focus on the kids.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because, as you mentioned, there are challenges, and it's, it's it's quite common. But Rebecca, I think that for a lot of us, when you're you approach something like this, it can be challenging because it's something we've never experienced. So, how do we negotiate? Is it best to to send a note to the other parent via email? Is it best to get in touch in person? What's the best course of action to lay out plans? Because, as you say, without plans, it can get sticky. Well, I um,
4: mean, it's a good point that. Um, Most of us who are adults haven't experienced this situation growing up because historically uh, divorce wasn't as prevalent as it now is. But starting in about the 1980s, many of us who are now in midlife did grow up in homes where there was divorce. But the difference was that there would be one parent who was custodial and one parent who was an access parent. The difference now is under the Divorce Act and also under the practice of uh, all the provinces and territories of Canada if their people aren't legally married um, it is very common for people to share time with the kids and the idea of custody has really been removed from the law so the difference there is to understand that it is the child's right and the child's entitlement to have maximum exposure maximum contact with both parents and with both sides of the family and unless there's a protection concern to really support the idea that maximum contact with both sides of the family is a very good idea. Now, what does that look like practically? You asked about, do you send an email? Do you speak in person? I think it really depends on the situation you're in. So the holiday season is going to escalate and exacerbate whatever's already going on. It's generally speaking, one tip about how to have less conflict with somebody you're in a high conflict position with is to talk to them less often. It actually is quite simple. So if you limit communication to perhaps email, or there are some apps available um, that are specifically geared for co-parent communication, these things can assist in communication that is less um, acrimonious because there's a lot of potential noise around your communication um, when you are communicating interpersonally. So again, depending on your own situation, but the most
1: basic, the least complicated way of communicating is actually often going to be electronic and that's the interesting part right and speaking of electronic you can go online right now and, and talk and read the the article that you have written in theconversation.com talking about the co-parenting part you know and I was shocked to see this stat 25 to 30 percent of Canadian kids are growing up separated in separated or divorced households that's a pretty high percentage and then you go on to say it's not the split itself that can affect the kids but the conflict right so making sure that we continue to think about them over the holidays it's not about us as parents
4: yeah so that's very correct in terms of uh the article I've written and yes that is available to read one thing to think about is divorce is now or separation is now not experienced as a discrete singular event that happens on a particular day kids are growing up experiencing having parents who are both in their lives and who are split on a day-to-day basis so it's an ongoing experience so this can actually be quite challenging for um, the well-being of the parents, but it can be very helpful for the kids. Again, to have that meaningful ongoing contact with both parents and their families, and so the best practices there really are about facilitating that contact between the kids and the and both parents without invo- without making it about that conflict, to really sideline that conflict and prioritize the value the kids can have in experiencing those holiday family traditions that we can look at fondly. Because as you say, this has now become a social norm. 25 to 35% of kids, and possibly more, are now growing up in households where both parents are meaningfully involved but aren't together. And Mm -hmm. that's actually a really positive change. Because previously and historically, a parental divorce or separation really meant that the children lost a parent they lost meaningful contact with one of their parents and with that whole extended family and we think about how valuable it is for the kids to be able to connect with that with both parents mm-hmm. and both of their extended families to really kind of take a step back from our day-to-day and whatever our priorities are <clears throat> and think about our childhood memories and how valuable it is to know and to have meaningful contact with both sides of family
0: Rebecca at what point I know you say you keep the kids out of it you want to you know keep them as far away from any conflict as possible but at what point is it time to uh, you know obviously if you've been through this process you have seen a lawyer but if you are not having time with your children that was agreed upon at what point do I reach out to a lawyer uh, you know and, and try to right that wrong well
4: I think it's a really good question I mean I am myself a lawyer and I would suggest um one of the, the misconceptions people have who haven't been closely involved with the legal system is contacting a lawyer isn't the same as going to court. So involving a lawyer at an early stage can actually be really beneficial. As soon as you're having difficulty communicating, if you involve a lawyer or another helping professional, such as a social worker, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be into a litigation process. I think one thing that you would try to avoid is litigation. Litigation is very expensive. It's very time-consuming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other problem with our court system across Canada is there, there are delays. Um, so if you have an emergency matter you need dealt with with respect to the holiday season, you might actually be too late. It might not realistically be an option to get into the court system. Things that lawyers can do in addition to taking you through a court process are negotiate on your behalf. Are connect you with other helping professionals such as parenting coordinators, and link you to um, resources and support that are available. Uh, a lawyer has the capacity and the professional skill and the experience <clears throat> to assist you in this process in a way that doesn't necessarily involve court proceedings. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this is a one. This is an interesting counterintuitive stat. But if you don't have a lawyer, so if you're unrepresented or self-represented in a in uh, the family law system, which is up to about 80% of people coming before the courts, you're actually more likely to go to court if you don't have a lawyer, because a lawyer has an awareness of what's problematic and expensive and difficult and costly and time-consuming about courts, and they're actually going to steer you away from those formal processes and into informal alternative dispute resolutions. Mm -hmm. processes. And if you don't have a lawyer, you're actually more likely to end up in
1: court. Interesting. I know a mediator is a great option as well. Thank you so much for yes. your time. It's uh, certainly something we need to think about and be very mindful about heading into the holidays. So thanks so much for your time. Absolutely. Take good care. Thank you. You too. Rebecca Jeremko Bromwich is an adjunct professor at the Department of Law and Legal Studies at Carleton University.